Welcome to the Strength Connection Podcast, a show to share stories, insights, and experiences in strength, physically, mentally, and spiritually. I'm Michael Krukowski, host of the Strength Connection, and I'm so grateful that you can join me today. So in these episodes, I connect with some of the most inspiring and successful individuals to chop it up and learn from true life experiences that have helped them become who they are, the strongest versions of themselves. One of the greatest ways I've always learned the most important lessons is through stories. We all have them, and they make us who we are. So let's dive in. Here we go. All right, he's back, guys. The Hebrew Hammer himself, Alex Salkin, rejoins me on the podcast. This is the third time Alex has been on the show because he's just straight awesome. Alex is a true master in both kettlebell training and body weight training, and I wanted to have him back to talk about his latest book, Tamers of the Lost Ark. It's a book solely focused on one vital piece of kettlebell ballistics. So every time I talk with Alex, I learn more, and he's just an absolute blast to connect with, and I know you're gonna enjoy this one. So with that, let's get to it. Before we do, please show the support for the show. Make sure you subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you're listening, and don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, The Strength Connection. Your support means everything to me, and I sincerely appreciate you. All right, thank you very much. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back, everybody. Alex Salkin. What's up, man? Thank you for coming back. What's up? It's good to be back. You know what? I This is going to be a weird way to start off a podcast. What famous person does everybody say you look like? I've gotten Paul Rudd before. Okay, I can kind of see that. Yeah. That wasn't um, who I had in mind, but... Okay. Why? Who's who's on? Who's I, you, you, look, you sound like you were going to say somebody else, and I don't want to take the words out of your mouth. So I got... <laughs> Paul Rudd, I got Ant-Man quite a bit when that came out uh, for a while, because um, I think we had that same jawline. Sure. The only other one I had was uh, Ryan Philippi, huh. was that I know what you did last summer, dude. Yeah, so of course. Yeah, both yeah, both yeah. guys. I'm like, hey, I'm like, I'll totally I'll totally rock that doppelganger Absolutely. You know, mentality I, right there. I was going to say Michael Keaton. Really? Okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's uh, I'm thinking like. Not seventy-year-old Michael Keaton. I'm thinking more like you know thirty-something. Like, did Michael you just Keaton. watch the Flash and like? No, oh, shit, I, that looks like Kurkowski. I you know I I wish I had because I I remember seeing because I, I was such a huge fan of the Batman movies when oh, I was yeah. a kid. I remember like just I my parents never let me have the Batman serial, but like I wanted that. Mm. I was just like that's how obsessed I was. It was like I need to have the serial. I need to watch this movie on repeat. I need the toys. Yeah, um, but. Uh, and incidentally, actually, I, I rewatched most of the original uh, Batman with Michael Keaton recently, mm-hmm. and it holds up. It's great. It yeah, is. I was going to say, I watched, I think I watched the first one six months ago or so. Yeah. It's pretty recent in the last year. And yeah. I'm like, God damn, this is a good movie. Like, Dude. this is still so, the whole, the part when he's in the the original Batmobile with Kim Basinger and they go into the the cave and yeah. the music is there. It gives you chills still. It's one of the things that I thought was great about it over the Dark Knight trilogy, which I think is the best superhero trilogy of all time. Agreed. Um, is that yeah, it's like you're entering a different world. But you know, the great thing about the Dark Knight trilogy is that it feels like this is our world, like this is happening in mm. contemporary, you know, contemporarily or contemporaneously with us, versus Tim Burton's. It's like you're in this gothic sort of like alt- like alternate universe where all the rules of physics still apply and all the rules of this and that, but society's different, culture's different. Everything mm-hmm. is different enough where you feel like you're being transported to to someplace else. And the way that everything was set up was, yep. yeah, it was incredible. And it still stands up to this day, I think. But in any case, you look more like more like Michael Keaton from that era, not seven-year-old. I'll, t- I'll take 1984 Michael Keaton. Yeah, that's yeah. not bad. So it's... Yeah. uh. 
I'm, I'm such a huge Batman fan and he's still uh, my number one. Christian Bale was amazing in that yeah. whole series. And it, and I, honestly, I gave so much credit to Pattinson in the, in the most recent one. I really yeah. loved it. I love the newest one because it really felt like that old school comic book type movie where yeah. it wasn't about it wasn't about Bruce Wayne at all. This was about the Batman. Like Bruce Wayne was barely in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, I have to agree. I, I did not have high hopes for it. And then I remember I watched it on a plane. I went to uh, Italy back in May to assist at the original strength workshop mm -hmm. that was happening in, uh, in Italy. And uh, so I decided, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll watch this movie because then I got like eight hours on this plane might as well. And I, I was impressed. Impressed. I mean, I again, I don't think it was as good as the Dark Knight trilogy, but it for what it was, I thought it was better than what I had anticipated it was mm -hmm. going to be, and it was obviously good enough. They're making a sequel, so um, yeah, yeah. I'm looking I, I agree. To I, th I think the first, the opening scene of that movie, and we'll we'll get off Batman here in a second, everybody. But it's it's the greatest thing in the world to talk about. Um, the opening scene of the new Batman movie when he like goes through the shadows and then fights like the first original. I was like, as soon as we're in, I was like, all right, I'm in. Like, let's yeah. go. Like, and then three hours of awesome, intense action series uh, from the Batman is my it's my favorite of all time of all the superheroes. I think Batman is the best. So I've seen. I'd love to see how everybody else takes it. I think Batman Returns was still awesome. The the yeah. last one of Tim Burton before it got into a little bit of the weird ones uh, from there, but. Yeah, we won't such a fun thing to think about those weird ones. The, the, <laughs> the Joel you know, Schumacher. Yeah, you know, it's funny, too, because I remember when I was a kid, I saw Batman forever and I was like, this is amazing. This is so much fun. And then I remember it was probably 10 years ago. I, I was asked last minute to babysit a friend's kid because I lived nearby and um, they had some other plans and their babysitter fell through. So I was like, all right, fine. And they were like, you know, I came over and Batman forever was playing in the background. I was like, this is terrible. Like, what was I thinking as a child? Like, I mean, but, but evidently he liked it because he was like, just, you know, like this wasn't the first time he had seen it. It was like one of those things that you know, he watched on repeat yeah. as well. We'll get right back to this episode, but first I want to tell you about Nabosu Technology. Nabosu is the leading company in foot care products created by the top functional podiatrist and human movement specialist, Dr. Emily Splickle and her team. Our feet are a connection to the earth and the foundation of all human movement, and it's often the most overlooked part of our body when it comes to health, fitness, and recovery. Personally, I never thought much of how the foot impacts my movement and strength until years ago when I found my intense sciatic pain I was dealing with was coming from a locked up midfoot and ankle issue. So after putting emphasis on this, my pain subsided completely. And since then, I've made sure to take care of my feet before anything else in training. I use the Nabosu Neuroball every day, whether I'm training or not, and I felt significantly better in both my barefoot strength training as well as running outside on grass and on pavement. Nabosu has the best products on the market, including the Neuroball, Recovery Socks, Splays, Activation Insoles, and the Kinesis Boards and Mats. So to check out Nabosu Technology, click on the link in the comments or go to nabosutechnology.com and use the code CONNECTION and get an additional 10% off your purchase. Again, that's the code CONNECTION. Use it to get 10% off. All right, now let's get back to it. But yeah, it was god awful. And then I think I saw Batman and Robin once. I saw it with my grandma, you know, for like a birthday lunch and movie sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even as a young Batman fan, I was like, wow, this was all I felt bad that I dragged my grandma to this crappy movie, you know? Yeah. The funniest thing is to watch George Clooney get asked about it and just start apologizing for that movie. <laughs> just being like, I'm so sorry that I almost killed the entire 
franchise from there but it is it's it's a weird thing too when you see something as an adult that you loved as a kid and it just doesn't hold up it's just yeah. like why why was this so powerful as a kid i mean it just shows the the evolution of just the different minds but i was i was so happy that when i watched the original batman again i was like after seeing the dark knight trilogy and the new batman and really liking it i was like no this still holds up jack nicholson as the joker is still one of the greatest things to ever you know go on the big screen yeah, it was brilliant. The whole thing, I thought, uh, I, I haven't seen Batman Returns in quite a while, but uh, I'm definitely down for it after rewatching the the original and mm -hmm. being very happy with it. So I think it deserves another watch for sure. No doubt. I love it. Well, listeners, if you think I look like Michael Keaton, then give Alex some flowers here. If not, just yeah. tell him he's crazy. I'd First love to hear all, your comments about it. Your name is Michael, so you're halfway there. And Michael your last K name too. is with a K, so... <laughs> That's probably 55% of the way there, at least. So folks, flowers, please, I insist. There we go. I love it. So, um, well, speaking of comic books, this is our trilogy episode that we're doing of you being a guest on the podcast. I love speaking with you about strength. We've gone back and forth numerous times. I've been on your podcast and uh, you know, so on and so forth. But it's been about a year since uh, since we chatted, which right. was your last book, the No BS Kettlebell book. And yeah. now you have a new book out, which is Tamers of the Lost Ark. That's and right. there it is right there. And I think anybody who is a kettlebell fanatic should at least chuckle at the name. Uh, if you do, you know, and if you follow Mike, then clearly you, you know, kettlebells, you understand. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, I thought the title was like, I, I have to use it. You know, it was a, it was a term that had been in my head for some time. I can give you the whole history behind the book because it's actually five years in the making. So okay. oh, and you'll be the first to be the exclusive to get the entire story because I've never told anybody this story before. Oh, well, let's let's not leave in suspense. Let's dive right into it. First off, I love the title, love the name. I love the that you make the work that you do so fun as well. Like there's such great content in it and you have such good programs and put so much thought into it. But you also show like there's everybody wants to have that superhero feel and like that yeah. that exciting kind of movie feel as we talked about. So when I see that right there, that just gets me excited and pumped up. I'm like, oh shit, what's going on inside this book? So break it down like what was five years in the making so what was the mission what was the philosophy behind this book well i'll do this i'll give you an overall idea of what the book is about so that uh dear listeners you can understand the uh the nature of it and what the focus is and then i'll, I'll work backwards and i'll talk about like the the we'll say the origin story of the book because even a book can have an origin story so <laughs> The idea behind it is if you're familiar with kettlebell training, then you're definitely familiar with ballistic lifts, which are without question, uh, I think, like really the standout element of kettlebell training. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you could do ballistic lifts with a barbell. I mean, it's far more advanced than what most people are really going to mm -hmm. uh, be able to expect to do. You can do ballistic lifts with a dumbbell, which is, I think, a little bit more achievable. But you can't really do ballistic lifts in the same way you can do with a kettlebell where they're just uniquely designed for things like swings, cleans, high pulls, snatches, things mm -hmm. of that nature. And uh, if anybody's familiar with the terminology, they would know that the term arc is describing the path that the kettlebell travels through. And yep. I remember I first read about this in Pavel's book, Enter the Kettlebell, where he talks about, oh, I think it was uh, Rob Lawrence, who was one of his early senior instructors had he he referred to it as taming the arc which is basically controlling the path that a kettlebell goes through in uh ballistic lifts and so the idea behind the book is this it's that 
if you when you learn kettlebell training, the first thing that you're going to learn among the first things that you're going to learn is a swing. It's so fundamental to what we do. It'd be like if you were learning to lift dumbbells, they're going to teach you how to do curls, you know, and then right. chest presses. And and then from there, you'll you'll add other things. But you got to start with the fundamentals and the swing being the center of the kettlebell universe and being the the uh, centerpiece of all the other ballistic movements. That is uh, where people always start. But, you know, we don't just put a kettlebell in somebody's hand and say, okay, swing. Some people right. can do that. It's a very small percentage. Some mm-hmm. people can do it. But what we do is we start off by teaching them what? The hinge, right? Mm -hmm. And even before we put a kettlebell in their hand, you know, where it's like, here's how to move your hips. You have to learn how to do it slowly. Then we'll have them do a deadlift. And why is that? Well, because you have to be able to move slowly before you can move quickly. And so once you start uh, moving, once you learn how to deadlift properly, you learn how to control the hinge using strength, then you can start doing the progressions toward the swings. But ballistic lifts have two elements. There's the hinge and then there's the arc. So the problem that I had seen for years was that we take the hinge and learning the hinge very seriously and we make sure we follow these two basic principles is that, number one, you can't think your way through a ballistic movement. So you have to be able to feel what it's supposed to feel like. And the other thing is you have to move slowly before you can move quickly. So we do that for the hinge. And what do we do with the arc? Just all over the place. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) And so the problem is that, well, what's worse actually is that, um, you know, if you're working with somebody who's very athletic, who's got very good uh, coordination, very good mind muscle uh, connection, it's not really as important in many cases, because a lot of times they're just primed and prepped and ready to be able to do these movements. And they can kind of, you know, I think subconsciously intuit what they're supposed to do. So mm-hmm. you may not really need as many steps in between. It's basically like, I mean, I, you know, I've got uh, my coach, Scott Stevens. He uh, He's told me that he's had people who learned to snatch on the first day. You know, mm-hmm. it's extraordinarily uncommon, but these are people with a high level uh, athletic abilities. You know, a lot of times they're, you know, track and field since they were sure. kids mm-hmm. or what have you. But most people are not coming in like that. Most people are extremely sedentary. They don't have good mind-muscle connection. They don't have good body awareness. Mm -hmm. So we follow these two solid uh, principles of slowly before quickly, and you can't think your way through a ballistic lift Mm -hmm. for the first stage for the hinge. And then for the arc, we just throw it out the window. And then, and what do, what do people do? Well, first thing we do is something speedy. You got to learn how to clean very quickly or snatch or whatever. And then the second thing is instructors. I mean, I've even seen this at the very high levels. They'll, they'll shout commands in the middle of, you know, an attempt at learning yes. to clean or you've seen it too. So it's not, you know, I've done it not, too. <laughs> of course, me too. Yeah. And I was like, what am I like? This doesn't make any sense. So what I thought is, why don't we just apply the same rules to the teaching the arc and all of these movements that we do with the, uh, with the hinge. Mm. So that was the idea behind it is learning how to tame the arc. Um, and I'm not going to give away all the contents of the book, but one thing that I will say for sure is that what, for instance, what, the glutes are to the hinge, the back is to the arc. And this is something that I didn't discover. I mean, Pavel has mentioned the same thing. Actually, in Enter the Kettlebell, he said, poles build backs. And, you know, what biceps are to bodybuilders, backs are to lifters. And he always said that, uh, at least as near as I can remember, in conjunction with the kettlebell quick lifts. So the connection of the back, and particularly the upper back muscles, and helping you to tame the arc is of the utmost importance. And so what I do in the book is I show people three different levels that they can that they can travel 
so that they can learn how to, number one, reconnect with their upper back muscles and the movements in particular mm-hmm. of the uh, the shoulder blades and the muscles surrounding them, and then apply that to the arc. And then it gets down to very detailed and very uh, specific movements that you can do with gymnastics rings to learn how to tame the arc properly with a kettlebell. And you do it first by slowing down the movement, and then you do it by speeding it up. So it follows the same process that we learn for the hinge and applies it to the arc so that you can learn much more quickly, you can advance much more quickly, and it takes almost all the guesswork out of the process. That's really interesting. It's We do. We put so much emphasis into the hinge and that proper hinge, and then once you get that, you think, okay, well, now just more reps and practice makes perfect, then you'll just eventually get it down. And whenever It's funny because even been doing this for forever, when I think taming the arc, I always think of snatching. You know, not as much with swings or with cleans, other ballistics, you know, yeah. from there. Um, it might come up, but yeah, how easy it is that we just shout out commands, you know, to people when you say, don't think your way through the ballistic. Well, easier said than done if you're first learning this yeah. all the time. And it is interesting as going back to when you first, um, you know, spoke about it is that differentiation of the ballistics. And that is kettlebells. I was on a podcast yesterday and somebody asked me that. And I've always had trouble to, kind of curate an answer to the differentiation of kettlebells. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that it's like, yeah, it's really the ballistics from there. It's like pressing grinds and stuff. Like it's really great in kettlebell work, but you can mimic that in some ways with other tools, but the ability to take a small, you know, dense object, heavy object and bring it through your legs to get that mobility in there is that differentiating factor. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. And if you really want to take full control of that, uh, of that, that central element that kettlebell lifting offers that really nothing else can approximate. You owe it to yourself to make every bit of the ballistic movements, meaning both the first half, the hinge, and then the second half, the arc, you owe it to yourself to uh, treat them with equal amounts of focus. And so one of the big issues that I see with a lot of people is that, uh, you know, it's through no fault of their own. They just, you know, the, the, the arc, they're just assumed to be able to know how to tame the arc uh, at least reasonably well once they've done the the hinge. But again, it's uh, very rarely is it really focused on. And so I wanted to take this time. I wanted to take the time in this book to be able to focus on it so that people could see how they could apply the exact same principles mm-hmm. with different strategies and different tactics in order to help them make much, much faster progress and just kind of in a way like bend time and space so that they don't have to do like what you mentioned, mm-hmm. where it's just endless repetitions until they eventually figure it out. It's, uh, small focused and like laser focused number of repetitions so that they can feel what they're supposed to feel and then go down the path of doing it until they get it perfect. So rather than having to to jump two expanses, mm-hmm. you know, one just to be just to go from crap to suck, you know, right, I want right. to get them as quickly as they can to doing creditable looking reps so that the more of those reps that they do, they're able to make much faster progress. And in fact, I just had there's a guy I was quoted right in the beginning of the book uh, Hazen Allward, who is a student of mine, and he's uh, he is a bricklayer by trade, but he loves kettlebell training. He loves strength training in general. And he mentioned to me that he had started doing the the drills from the book. And, and he's in his, I think he's 48. And for the first time in his life, he did easy 32 kilo snatches for sets of five, whereas he wasn't even close to doing a single one prior to that, if I recall his story correctly. And the only reason he stopped at five was because he had other things to do on his training agenda and he just didn't, you know, he didn't want to wear himself out. Mm. So uh, it really, really can help to fill in a lot of gaps 
make sure that your your strength and your technique is up to standard and you know and i don't want to say work wonders or work miracles because really all it is it's a matter of doing intelligent work as opposed right. to just you know uh we'll say dumb work done over and over until you eventually get it right but uh the the nice thing about it is that it's not just for kettlebell instructors it's principally for kettlebell enthusiasts and i think the value for kettlebell instructors is going to be helping them to learn how to help their students much faster than they would otherwise right I want to ask you to elaborate a little more on what you said though, like glutes is for the hinge back. The back is for the art for yeah. the arch, which I really love. And as you said, like feel what you're supposed to feel. Now, I assume when you say like, when we tame the arc in the back, that feeling is we're really looking at the upper back yeah. more rather than the lower back. Is that what you mean? Bingo. Yeah. Lower back is essentially yeah. if you're doing your swings and cleans mm -hmm. and snatches and stuff like that, if you're doing it correctly, the lower back's role is essentially stabilizing. And so it should be that the hips, or in this case, we'll say like the glutes specifically, that those are the prime movers. Those are actually what are moving the bell, but the, and the low back is just stabilizing, but it's, it's really not uncommon for me to see people who, uh, not just with the ballistic lifts, I think this is uh, emblematic of a lot of other issues. They just like lock down their upper body and mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I was at the gym yesterday in, in Las Vegas. I was, uh, I was out there training a VIP student and, uh, in the morning time I was, I went down to their gym and got into workout and there was a gal who was uh, doing, she had great technique. She was strong. She was doing like weighted chin ups. Very impressive. She was doing cleans with the barbell. She was doing uh jerk stuff like mm -hmm. that. Then I saw her do pushups and it was like, all of a sudden it was like, you know, like the scared yeah. cat kind of look, you know, it was like her shoulders were locked down and it was just basically like the only movement was coming from the elbows. And it's, I don't think it's necessarily likely to hurt you, but you're leaving a lot of strength on the table because it's ignoring right. a very important part of upper body movement, which is what's called scapulohumeral rhythm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which, uh, you know, you, this isn't going to be on a test. So people, you don't have to remember <laughs> the name, but, but basically as the name would imply your scapula or your shoulder blade and your humerus, the ball and socket joint of your shoulder, are supposed to move in tandem with one another in order to create the movements of the arm. So right. what happens a lot of times is that people end up with issues because their shoulder blade, they never really move their shoulder blades or they deliberately lock them down, like when they're doing push-ups, pull-ups, things like that. The shoulder blades may move, but they're not moving much and they're not really taking full advantage of them. And I think the ratio um, is something like, uh, in terms of the movement of the scapula to the, to the shoulder is like a one to two ratio. So obviously mm -hmm. the shoulder joint, the, the glenohumeral joint is supposed to move more. And then the shoulder blade is, is kind of, I don't want to say tagging along it, but because it plays a, a central role itself. But think about that. Let's say your shoulder blade's not moving the way that it's supposed to because it's stuck or because you're deliberately trying to lock it in place. Well, now, all the movement that your shoulder blade is supposed to be doing to help you to to accomplish a particular mm -hmm. movement is being offloaded onto the onto the shoulders. So it's it's no wonder that so many people have these shoulder issues, uh, or um, at and that's at at worst. But uh, mm -hmm. at best, they end up hitting plateaus in things they shouldn't really be hitting plateaus in. Like there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to do more snatches, but your shoulders just you know completely right. uh, crap out or or and then you can't go any heavier and you, you can't figure out why and again it's partially because uh the upper back which is a, a network of very mm -hmm. strong and capable muscles is not really being utilized for things like snatches where it's absolutely crucial or high pulls where i would argue it's even more crucial so a lot of times what you see is people are just over pulling with their arms mm -hmm. and the arms are pulling double duty and the back is 
you know, it, it's it's supervising. Let's say it's like a supervisor on a construction site who's, right. you know, he's just got a job because his dad's the boss and right. he's not really doing anything of value. So you don't want your shoulder blades and the and the back muscles connected to them to not be doing their job. And so the big focus is, like I said, uh, glutes are to the hinge, what the upper back is to the arc. And that's exactly why, because mm -hmm. the movements of the arms, which we see pretty readily in stuff like cleans, high pulls, snatches, yeah. You know, it swings as well, uh, maybe to a lesser degree because there's less, um, uh, we'll say like less interference from, you know, uh, the bending of the elbow, which is necessary for all the other ones. Uh, all of these things are mission critical. And if all you're relying on is just a movement of your elbow and not anything, uh, and then the secondarily, the movement of the shoulder, depending That's on where right. you're going, and you're not focusing on the role that the upper back plays, you're leaving tons and tons of strength on the table. And tons of, of development on the table because right. you just, you're offloading a very, very important element of your training to, you know, whatever will pick up the extra work. Right. Yeah, I think that it's such a fascinating topic, uh, you know, to really dive into a specific kind of book on in here, because we don't often, I don't talk about this that much about that. Like we know what taming the arc means and like yeah. keeping that connection, but often I don't think we relate it to that upper back mobility stability combo that you're yeah. getting in there and how much that can really impact your, your strength and your development. And like, there's so much about developing your, your power and just your overall strength from these movements and ballistics is a great way, you know, to do that because you can do a lighter weight than you would have to from loading up a barbell and doing like a deadlift. You can do powerful swings and not kill your muscles in the process, Exactly. but taming the art that, that really that total body development that we're aiming for without looking at that piece at the same detail as we do with the hinge and driving the legs down and getting that glute contraction, pulling up the kneecaps, all that stuff where you're leaving a lot of development on the table. And when you were talking about, you know, that woman with, she's crushing out great strength with lifts, like weighted chin-ups, but then you go to something as remedial as a push-up. And you see, there's such a lack of something going on there. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to see. I've seen people do that where uh, I've seen them in the gym where they're so strong. They have such great, just total body strength from just some of the things they do. And then they go and do a 16 kilogram kettlebell swing. And it looks like the most awkward thing in the world, just because there's no connection to it. And it feels so weird in my head. I was like, I just saw you do some really incredible athletic stuff. And now all of a sudden 35 pounds is kicking your ass all over the gym yeah. on the other side. It yeah. is really, it's such a strange thing. Well, you know, it's funny too, because I, of course it was a gym, you know, it was, uh, and it was a very nice, uh, hotel that I was in and they had kettlebells at this gym. And of course, you know, there's somebody lifting kettlebells in a way that would make most of our eyes burn. So yeah, you see all that, you see that stuff all the time. And it, the, the, you know, the guy didn't look like he didn't know what he was doing. It was, but it's very interesting to see that it's like, you know, kettlebells and calisthenics, two of the things which have the potential to make the biggest impact on your strength overall. Uh, people put very little thought into how to actually perform them. And, and so one of the things, for instance, that with this book that I want to try to do is get the people who see the value of kettlebell training and they see the value of getting really good at it, get them to see how they can fill in certain gaps in their own training. And, uh, you know, it's particularly because you just, you just mentioned this when we think about, uh, the ballistic lifts, well, one of the big, uh, I think out, uh, people outside of the kettlebell world would see that and they'd be like, okay, that's like a lower body movement. They might be like, oh, it's an upper body movement because you're lifting with your arms. Right. And right. you say, no, 
you're using your hips and they say, okay, so it's a lower body movement. Well, then what's the, what's the, uh, the retort from there? No, it's a full body movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then the question that, um, which by the way, I accept, I think that's a very good answer, but the question then that needs to be asked of kettlebell instructors is really, so what other parts of the body are you working in the swing? And if the upper back is not playing a role, you know, other than, and in, I think many of them understand that it's supposed to play a role, but they can't really verbalize it or they haven't really taught it to their students. Maybe they do it automatically. And so they don't think about it. But if you have students who are, which are going to be most of our students hunched over all day, you know, they're like completely, they're typing on a computer. They're, you know, hunched over their steering wheel, uh, all these other things. Well, they're going to have a hard time pulling their shoulder blades back. So it's not uncommon when you see somebody first doing swings that, you know, the the kettlebell pulls their shoulder out of the socket. So the first thing you got to do is tell them, here's how to pull the shoulder. uh, Here's how to pull your shoulder back. Well, what's pulling the shoulder back? It's not your biceps, not your Mm -hmm. triceps. So instinctively, I think instructors realize the importance of the upper back, but they don't really put much focus on it. It's one of those things where I think they treat it in some sense, kind of like the lower back where it's like, yeah, it's supposed to stabilize. And and that's it. But the reality is there's a lot more movement happening in the upper back if you're doing everything correctly. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the big things that I think if people make that change, whether they're instructors or they're enthusiasts, it's going to make the biggest overall impact on their on their uh, kettlebell lifting at, yeah. as just about anything else. That's huge. Yeah, I remember Mark Chang made an incredible explanation of the postural muscles and the difference of lung capacity in something Mm -hmm. like a snatch test. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah, we had, uh, I remember somebody was doing a snatch test and they only got like 95 reps or something like that. So they uh, missed it out. And he was showing the posture of every rep at the end was kind of this slightly closed off. And the difference of when you actually open up those postural muscles, how it opens up your lung capacity, where you can increase by 10, 20% and that, and all of a sudden it, it feels like, oh my God, my cardio has really improved. It's like, yeah, you didn't do anything really for your cardiorespiratory system. You just improved your postural muscles there. And you got out of your own way. Exactly. Well, when you kind of talked about that, like the, the total body movement, and I understand that same thing. I've kind of just said, yes, absolutely. Knowing there's a lot more that's going on inside that from there. So I've tried to call it like, it's a human movement that we do uh, from there, but yeah, it's, I've always thought, like I said, like I've loved, um, like I've understood taming the arc more in like snatching work. I think maybe just because there's more going on in there in my own head versus something like a swing. When you started breaking down this book in here, did, did some like taming the arc, do some things feel like it's a little bit easier to work with, with certain exercises versus others? Big time. Yeah. One of the things actually, before I released the book, I did a webinar. So the people who were, um, at the webinar, I told them this is going to be interactive. So bring a kettlebell. If you have gymnastics rings or a TRX, bring those as well. We're going to walk through all the elements that I'm going to be covering in the book. And I had, there was, for instance, there was one guy, um, Josh Wang of Canada. He is a kettlebell enthusiast, but he's like high level. And he's, he doesn't train for a living. He does train people, but it's more like out of the passion for, you know, for the kettlebell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he is somebody I would consider advanced in terms of his abilities. And so when we did, uh, we did a drill that um, was designed to help improve the one arm swing. And he said it felt effortless. 
like and this is a guy who knows one arm swings he's competed in gs mm-hmm. he is very competent and hard style so i mean this is the guy who in some sense has more skills than i have you know because i know nothing about gs yeah. um and certainly i've never you know competed but uh, that would be one great example is that it, it was much easier too because i would say with the swing you know the primary focus is just don't let go kind of you know it's like the, the kettlebell is not uh, the kettlebell travels out in front of you in the widest possible arc, but it doesn't really require as much input from the arm. Whereas, you know, something like a clean is a very tight arc. And so you have to be, and you have to have a really good timing because if you don't, yeah. you're hitting yourself in the shoulder, the bell is going too high. So um, that was one example. But then of course, you know, we did stuff like um, the, uh, the high poles or the cleans, things like that. I had a lot of other people saying the same thing, like, I, there was a guy who's a, a pretty much a raw beginner at uh, at kettlebells. I mean, he had done some stuff before, so the raw beginner might be overselling it a little bit. But he was very much a beginner, and we were working on high poles. And I showed him uh, a drill that he could do with gymnastics rings, and he said it was just like it, it completely took again, like I talked about that gulf, uh, you know, between attempting to learn something mm-hmm. and actually being able to do it, and just like completely closed it for him. So he was able to do high poles with no real problem. And he said it was like far easier than he than he would have imagined. And, mm-hmm. and this is a beginner. This is not an intermediate, certainly not an advanced. So the nice thing about it is that it has something, the system has something for pretty much everybody. So if you're uh, uh, an instructor, you're mm-hmm. an, a high level enthusiast, a raw beginner, because the arc is so is such a seminal part of ballistic drills, it behooves you to actually learn how to do it very well. But there are going to be some things that you're going to pick up very easily. And then uh-huh. there are going to be other things, like let's say if you're a beginner and you're trying to learn the snatch, you're probably going to be better off just focusing on getting good at the swing and eventually the clean and simply working your way through the prerequisites before you try to work on progressions for something really high level, if that makes sense. Because you're right, the snatch, that's the ultimate in taming the arc. And mm-hmm. it's the one that requires the most precision, the most focus, the most you know dedication. Uh, but if you're just beginning, you should start with the stuff that's easiest, build up those easy wins, yeah. and then use that to build up to the big finale, the snatch. Yeah. I love this. I'm really I'm, uh, so fascinated by this because like, I love ballistics so much. And as we said, yeah. it's like you can't think your way through ballistics. So totally. it's almost even more valuable because when you get this down, you have to instinctively have So you actually own it a lot more than I think a grind exercise that you do. So when you really have it down, that's why I think snatching is the most powerful exercise in the kettlebell world. You know, other ones are phenomenal. And anytime I say that people always yell at me about like, what about this? I love all the exercise. They're great exercises, but the snatch, as far as like a total, like one, you know, exercise gym that you can have, it's so powerful on the strength and the conditioning side. But I didn't even think so much about, uh, you know, the, the taming the arc side of how powerful that is of that upper back development on there. So this is, this is awesome, man. I'm so pumped about this new book for you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'll, okay. and I got to tell you too because I I mentioned I would tell you the entire origin story of this that I don't think okay. I've told anybody else before because yeah. because this is five years in the in the making really since this first yeah came to conception and, and okay and it's kind of funny because it didn't have to be five years in the making the reality is I could have done this five years ago it was like so um, originally I had the idea in mind to write this as an article for Strong First and uh, because I had I had started to realize back in like 2018. That you know what I, a lot of the people that I'm training, uh, just they need more help with the arc, um, and we need to be able to learn how to slow it down. Basically, the stuff that I had mentioned to you earlier, 
Uh, but ultimately, and I had, I had even started making plans to write it out. I, I had like an early draft of like some of my ideas. And ultimately, the only reason I didn't do it is because I thought it has to be called Tamers of the Lost Ark. And Strong First doesn't have my sense of humor sometimes. So I don't think they're going to let me use that title. So I just started <laughs> kicking the can down the road. Uh, really, I was like, it was, uh, you know, my my desire to hold on to that artistic creativity, as it were. Sure. I, I have no doubt they would have printed the article, but I was like, it needs to have the title because this is, I, I think it's super eye catching. Hold to your convictions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And incidentally, I mean, I've still I've written articles for Strong First since then, mm-hmm. too. So it was it was and I've got another one coming out, I think, in a couple months. So uh still write articles for them but in this case i was like there's got to be something more here and so when i started thinking about it i thought you know what like this could really be a book because there's a lot that goes in there's a lot more going into it than just like you know here's some some tricks or some ninja tricks that you can try out in your training this is something that you can use as a system to help and by the way a system that you don't need forever the whole idea behind the book is to make itself obsolete in your training so it's passing the torch to you here's what you need to do for now and then when I get to the programming side of the book, what I tell people is I like to call it reverse programming because the, the idea is to make you less dependent on the movements as time goes on. So mm. you're getting in, you're improving your technique. Once your technique is improved and you know what you're doing, then you don't necessarily need to use the drills anymore. Sure. Or if you do decide to revisit them, maybe you do it you know, before you decide, okay, I'm going to try to do as many in a row as I can, or I'm going to try to go for really heavy reps. I'm going to try to... So I really want to hone and sharpen my technique Mm -hmm. before I do it again. But the idea is to make you non-dependent on it, but to use it in the same way that you'd use tools to fix your car or anything else. You use it when you need it and you put it away for later use, you know, if the time comes, but not the sort of a thing that you rely on 24-7. The principles in it, such as, you know, learning how to utilize the upper back and how to better tame the arc. Once you figure out how to do those things, then the only time you would conceivably need to uh, revisit them is for exactly that when you're at a point where you're ready to progress or you're ready to progress and you're ready to specialize or something along those Mm -hmm. lines uh maybe prepare for your uh, sfg recertification you know you Mm -hmm. really want to dial things in but otherwise it's supposed to be the sort of a thing that you don't need to uh, it doesn't need to be a crutch it's supposed to be a guide and then once you get to your goal you can you can set it to the side and return whenever you want Awesome. I love, I mean, that's such a good philosophy of all different kind of training systems, right? Is to make it obsolete in your training. So you can get to work and do what you need to do to get stronger, to get lean, whatever your goal is uh, from there. So yeah. I love that. I love that you mentioned that. Has there, I wanted to ask you about kind of the evolution of your writing. Like, I mean, you've written a lot for a long period of time. Like how is like from this latest book that you have to like when you first started writing, like, what's the biggest, like, what's the biggest difference? Is it still the same process that you do when you put stuff together like this? Or has it changed a lot over time? I think it's changed quite a bit, I, particularly because um, I would say writing my, when I started writing, it was somewhat recreational. One of my uh, friends at the time needled me to write like on a blog. So I started writing a daily blog that, you know, a couple of friends read it was this was i think kind of like before the inundation of social media this was like 2005 so like facebook was still in its infancy myspace was a big deal you know but um i don't know if you remember that i mean i had a i never got on i know what it is but i never jumped the gun on it so i did man i was like obsessed (laughs) so um but what's interesting actually is that i always got compliments on my writing for being you know uh, engaging and stuff like that and then 
I went and did uh, my degree in English writing and linguistics. It was or the degree was in English with the the focus being on writing and linguistics. And I remember right it was right around this time that I had gotten certified. I got certified as an RKC under Pavel in 2010. And then uh, it was shortly thereafter that I finally graduated from college. And I remember thinking like, okay, I want to start uh, I want to start writing about fitness. And it was so hard because everything was so matter of fact. No, it was completely black and white, un- and by which I mean, uh, not rigid ideologically, but just boring. You know, it was like, and right. I remember it took probably a year and a half before I could get some color back in my writing and make it interesting. And I, I bumped into an old uh, uh, English professor of mine, and I, I told him of my travails, and he said, "Yeah, that'll that'll do that to you, won't it?" Like all this, you know, English writing and stuff like that. Um, because when you're writing reports or not reports, but you're writing essays, essays and assignments. And stuff, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just, it's like uh, theoretically you could be entertaining in them, but more than anything, you're kind of just trying to get like, I don't want to say game the system in like a unflattering way, but you're trying to figure out like what your professor wants to hear and then write like that, you know, so that it's right. like, you know what I mean? So um, yeah. it. So what I would say is that the process the process now is is definitely different because writing makes up a big portion of my uh my business in that mm-hmm. you know I have uh, a daily email that I write yep. I've got tons of courses and programs and challenges and guides and I have a monthly uh a newsletter coaching mm-hmm. slash coaching program and things like that and I would say more than anything the process has has distilled itself so it used to be somewhat haphazard where it would be like I would write something when I had an idea and you know now i i'm always i've got like a big list of ideas that mm-hmm. i might you know might be able to choose from or or article prompts or you know email prompts or whatever mm-hmm. so what i would say is yeah what i would say is probably the the best way to describe it is that we'll we'll take an email for example yeah. i start with a prompt um usually like a title that sounds cool um or a headline that sounds cool yeah. And then from there, I it's much easier to like go through the Rolodex of memories and experiences that I've had and pick one out and then just kind of start writing about it and then tie it into something that's relevant, you know, to to their goals yep. or to their aspirations or what have you. And that, to some degree, that's also true with um, with the the courses or programs uh, or challenges that I write. And in many cases, the goal is it might be something like okay, I think about something in particular that I think they need to uh, they need to hone in on as um, an important uh, an important way to fill a gap let's say so I I wrote a couple of years ago a, a very popular challenge on dead bugs and it was like doing dead bugs daily and I had a, I had a program so it wasn't just like do a bunch of dead bugs, do a bunch of dead bugs like, yeah. yeah it was like you're gonna follow this process and you're gonna just slowly make them more challenging and and so on and so forth and so I called it dawn of the dead bug and so once I had a cool name for it and I had an idea about what I wanted it to help people accomplish, writing it was very easy because then it came down to like, okay, so what are the benefits? Why is it that you know people need this? What are some of the things that people have noticed from doing them? And you know, and so on down the line. And so for me, it's starting with an idea or a prompt. And then from there, figuring out, and this is of the utmost importance, who I'm trying to help mm-hmm. because you know, I don't train professional athletes i don't train people who are you know in their 20s and and stuff like that just looking to let's say pack on as much mass or you know spend their whole day in the gym just working out it's people who are in their 
forties, fifties, even sixties who have, you know, a career, they might be a business owner, you know, they're married, they have kids, they have house, they have mortgage payments, they have all these other things. And yet they have this enthusiasm and this like thirst to get stronger, to get fitter, to become better than they were when they were kids, be, uh, you know, better than they were when they were in their twenties. And they, they believe very correctly, in my opinion, that the best version of themselves has never yet seen the light of day and that it's up to them to develop and bring that person out. And so they, they understand that, you know, uh, they, they have some mileage built up. And they have uh, also other challenges like minimal amount of time. They don't mm -hmm. necessarily have time to commute to a gym. Um, they enjoy kettlebell and calisthenics training. They like the feeling of getting stronger specifically. Yeah. So not just getting wiped out from a super hard workout. And I have these people as uh, or this, we'll say this avatar of a person in my mind when I come up with something. And then I try to think about, okay, well, how is it that I can best lead them to succeed from where they are. And so then I, when I come up with a program uh, or a specific set of guidelines to follow, I have that in mind so that I'm not like, okay, now you're going to, you know, you're going to do five pistol squats mm -hmm. and then you're going to follow it up with, you know, you know, five muscle ups. Oh, right. And then you're going to, because those are things that might be cool to perform, but very few people are number one, really need to do those things. And mm -hmm. uh, number two are really capable of it. Right. And if they're not capable of it, they're still capable of achieving that goal of bringing out that person within them who has been waiting to be summoned, let's mm -hmm. say, into reality. And uh, it, the, the path to that is not through the most technically difficult exercises, but rather through the foundational ones that lead to the more technically difficult. And so again, going back to the book, for instance, yeah. it's mm -hmm. like, that's the whole idea is how to make the technically difficult easier to achieve so that they can summon this man or woman that they've always wanted to to be able to walk around as. Right. I love that. It's like, it's like the GPS, like you need to do all the, like the turns through the, uh, through the neighborhood in order to get to the highway. Then as soon as the highway is there, then the GPS shuts up and just lets you drive. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I love that. So, well, it's, um, what you said there about like, even like the, the niche and like target market and stuff like life for that person is already really serious. So it's yeah. like, if it's more like serious stuff, it is, you can get into specifically writing or put something and it could sound so scholarly from yeah. there where I remember the first, the first blog I ever wrote, I, I read Pat's uh, pretty early on Chronicles of Strength, yeah. uh, but I read Tony gentle course because mm. he was talking about transformers and like with his stuff. And it's like, it just made it fun. It's like, Oh my God, like fitness is just fun. And yeah, like that was like all of a sudden, wow, you can write about this type stuff and you can connect it with this. It's like, this is just a good time from here. And I think specifically too, as coaches, like we can get down that rabbit hole of like being so serious of like need to get this information out in this very strict way. When in reality, yeah. talking about fun things and relating it into life. And as you said, like, yeah, use this book as ways to dial in your techniques and then go like, you know, just you know, yeah, rocket right. launch afterwards and just go from there. So it's interesting, but it's like, you have to go through those periods of time, right? You have to go through that experience and that evolution of the process in order to get there. It's just, I don't think you, just like anything, you can't shortcut that process. You just need to put the time in and put the reps in. True. And I think uh, in particular, I would say that the the one thing that people need to realize is that the path that's in front of you, you're going to have to traverse it no matter what. But like with anything, there are more uh, effective and efficient ways, and then there are less effective and efficient ways. And you know, I don't think people should worry about being as optimal with everything they do as possible.
possible. I think practicality is far more important for most people. But I think just on a very basic level, people can understand that, okay, I've got this road ahead of me with twists and turns. I could go down it on a bike or I could go down, uh, I could go down this road in a car. And so the idea is like, you're going, you, no matter what, you're going to have to make all these twists and turns. The question is, do you get there more quickly? You know, are you more shielded from the elements? Things like this. And so no matter what, whether you, you can start off on a bike and switch to a car, you know, um, when it makes sense, you can start off in a car and switch to a bike if, you know, if that's what the, the road is going to call for. But use this analogy as a way to understand that there are definitely smarter ways to do things and let's say uh, less time efficient ways to do things. But no matter what, you're going to have to do them. And sometimes you are going to have to go. Sometimes you're going to be able to go 70 miles an hour down a, a highway with no traffic and nothing in your way. Other times, you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to get on your weave through on your yeah. five speed and you're going to have to kind of weave through the, you know, the trail. So yes. that's just the way that things go. But the ideal is to use the 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 right means of transportation wherever possible going down that road and not worrying so much when you have to switch from yes. four wheels to two or yeah. you know two to four love that optimal versus practical that yeah a, i have that's this, a beautiful debate well i have this concept i'll have to tell it i'll have to tell you about it some other time called yeah. uh i like uh, i like to call it minimal maximal optimal practical and those mm. are basically your four options for training and uh it's a whole okay. different discussion, but right, I, I think yeah. you would find it interesting. Oh yeah, we'll dive into that. I always I love the analogy of the highway. You know, I've always used like the three lanes right there. It's like your your regular plan of what you have. That's like the middle lane. Then yeah. if you've got more juice, if you want to accelerate things, then you move to the left lane. But if everything goes to crap, like what are the non-negotiables? That's the right lane. And regardless yeah. of where you're at, speeds are different, but everything's moving forward. Yeah. And so often we think that there's only this one lane. It's either all or nothing, you know, type mentality of I need to do this or I'm not doing anything when I love the way that you broke it down there with that, that optimal versus practical in there. It's like, yeah, maybe right now optimal is not the best thing. What is most practical? Because that's yeah. still a step forward. Yeah. The, well, what's ironic too, is that optimal and maximal are typically the most stressful in one way or the other. Maximal is most physically stressful and optimal is most mentally stressful because it's like, well, I couldn't do things exactly as I wanted to. Now I'm anxious that maybe I've left gains on the table and that I'm going to suck and that, you know, so yeah, I think that um, people, if people can see that they have multiple options, it makes it a lot easier for them to take it easy on themselves, you know, not in the sense that they don't push themselves, but you know, okay, so you didn't do everything perfectly today. It's not a big deal. You know, you're still further along down the road, even if you were, you know, maybe today you had to go 45 miles miles an hour instead of 60. Well, you still you still made it the entire day. You did exactly what you had intended to do. You just didn't maybe get as far as you wanted. Nevertheless, it's a lot better than just pulling over to the shoulder and saying, well, if I can't go 60, then I should just, I'm not even going to drive, which is, you know, exactly. basically what a lot of people do when they when things don't go as planned for their training. And it's a complete mistake. I don't have to tell you this, you know, you understand, but that's yeah. the mentality that a lot of people have. Is, no, it's all it is. And I think it's a mentality that is, should be discussed more and more often. Cause you know, I was, it's interesting this last past month, I've had quite a few people who were interested in programming yeah. and had that same message of I'm someone that when I do something, I'm all or nothing. Like I'm in, and right. ironically, every person was not doing anything at the time for their health. I'm like, so I guess this is the nothing stage. Yeah, exactly. It's almost non-ironic. The, the ironic thing is that they say that, and then you ask like one question, mm -hmm. and then it just reveals that, oh, okay, maybe I'm not. Like I, 
I remember I had a discussion with a gal a number of years ago. I was training her and she said, I'm just a very all or nothing person. You know, if I'm not training six days a week, I'm going to train zero. And I was like, oh, you're an all or nothing person, huh? When you drove here, did you drive uh, mm-hmm. 100 miles an hour the whole way? Did you did you just not stop at the stoplights? Did you not tur- you know slow down to turn corners? You're not all or nothing. I mean, you don't treat anything else in your life like this. Uh, the reason that you're doing this with your training is because it gives you a plausible it gives you plausible a plausible reason to, to say, well, here's why I quit. Like, ah, you know, I couldn't go as hard as I wanted mm-hmm. to, and I just my my training kept getting interrupted, and so I thought I'm not going to get as much out of it. It's an excuse. That's why. Now, look, everybody has excuses, okay? But I, yeah, 100%. When people say that they're an all or nothing person, what they're really saying is, I'm, I want to give myself an out so that if I fail or if, you know, my motivation starts to wane, I have an excuse for, well, you know, this came up and then that came up and I, you know, I really wanted to do it. So, yeah, I, I always try to get people to realize that they're actually not all or nothing and that Mm -hmm. if they can still arrive at their destination, whether it's to train with me or to you know go to the movies or go to work, right. they can do that without being all or nothing behind the wheel of a car. Well, they can certainly do that and still achieve their goals and 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 uh, arrive at their destinations yep. in uh, in their fitness as well. But they have to adopt the mentality that they use for literally everything else, mm-hmm. and they can't they can't try to apply that to their training. Yeah. And the only way to fully understand it is just to practice it, to be yeah. uncomfortable with it. You know, I remember I. You know, Tim Allman changed my mind about this a couple of years ago when we were chatting. And, you know, Tim's a guy who's shout out to Tim. Um, he, you know, one of the strongest guys like out there, like it's just can crush out snatches, like 48K yeah. snatches, like nothing. And I would say, and he's training with a 20K, a 24K, you know, now for, you know, relatively to his strength is like nothing, but he's practicing the movement. He's doing these less reps. And he challenged me on that of once of just asking about the joy of training and using Mm -hmm. submaximal loads and ballistic work and not, you know, need just because you can do a 28 or a 32 or a 36 doesn't mean a 24 has no merit in your program. And it's like actually using that. And kind of going back of even dialing in your technique, taming the arc. It's like, you know, finding those Goldilocks weights, those things that you can do consistently over and over again. And I started going lighter than I can, you know, quote unquote, but feeling more joy, like enjoying the training piece of it. And actually it was a deeper connection to it. And like, I learned that 13 years into, into training, you know, it's not something that you're going to get right away. And, yeah. um, but that was a big shift on that from that all or nothing mentality into like, yeah. Okay. Like th- you can't, you don't need to win the workout. Like, you know, it's like, just go into it, just get what you need to done. And sometimes it's just approaching it like the working man and then just go on and get everything else done that you need to for the day. Definitely. Definitely. There's a balancing act in your training where it has to be I don't want to say entertaining, but I'll say engaging enough to keep you focused. And I think one of the things is that, yeah, a lot of people, particularly, you know, people who are very type A, they're like, no, I got to go all out. I got to, you know, I got to hit it hard and all this other stuff. And if you can learn how, pardon me, you can learn how to slow things down and then just appreciate the, the process and realize that the process is the way, you know, it's, and the, the destination happens again and again every single day the destination is showing up doing the work that you had plotted to do or working on the thing that you're trying to get better at you know uh 
if when people can learn how to appreciate that and not constantly be so uh, focused on the future where they're getting anxious because you know they see only how far away they are when you shift the goal to being like nope your goal is just to do what's you know what's on the sheet today to do and when you're done with that you're done mm-hmm. eventually the time comes you're feeling good they test things out and oh my gosh i can snatch a 32 or i can swing the 40 i can do all these different things that i couldn't do before and i'm just training with these submaximal weights yep and i think uh yeah the sooner people can can learn the joy of that the, the sooner they'll be able to stay consistent no matter what and give themselves excuses to succeed rather than excuses to throw in the towel. Consistently good over occasionally great. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Alex Salkin, ladies and gentlemen, um, Alex, dude, time flew by as always. Uh, there was more things that we would dive into, which we'll have to do for another time, I think, but man, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure having you on and congrats on the new book. It's Thank you. Awesome. And dude, thanks so much for jumping on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. If people want to uh, jump into Tamers of the Lost Ark, check out your content. What's the best place that they can go and grab it? Well, it's on Amazon. So if you type in either my name, uh, you'd have to spell it correctly. It's spelled A-L-E-K-S. Blame my parents for that one. Um, or you can just type in Tamers of the Lost Ark and you should find it. And uh, alternatively, you know, the other thing is if you like... Uh, the kind of training that you can do daily, kind of like what you know, uh, Mike and I were just talking about, and you like stuff like kettlebells and calisthenics. You might also like my nine-minute kettlebell and bodyweight challenge, which is free. Uh, it basically consists of gait pattern movements that help you to really tie your body together better, get your strength from head to toe boosted up without really complicating anything in your programming, specifically because it can be done in conjunction with your regular training. So I've had people tell me that they'll do it either before their workouts as part of their warm-up or after their workouts mm-hmm. as part of a finisher. And they'll do it daily because it's not exhausting. It's something that you know is very, very repeatable. And it's, again, gait pattern movements like crawling, loaded carries, mm-hmm. other things like that. It's kind of a thing that you can learn very, very quickly. And it's a lot of fun. It's entertaining. It's engaging. And you'll get a lot out of it. And you can just go to 9minutechallenge.com and you can get your free copy from there. So if that Beautiful. is your style, by all means, go to 9minutechallenge.com. I think you'll really enjoy it. And uh, if you are looking to increase your your kettlebell pizzazz, panache, you know, technique, then uh, Tamers of the Lost Ark on Amazon has got you covered. Beautiful. Alex, you're the best. Thank you so much, my friend. We won't wait a, a year for the next one here. We'll have to no. do it much earlier from there. But uh, absolutely appreciate it, man. And we'll chat soon. Listeners, go check out Alex and I will catch you on the next one. All right. Peace. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found some great value here. And if you like this episode, please drop a comment and leave us a five-star rating and review. It does more to build the show than you can imagine. And do not forget to check out and join the Strength Connection Facebook group. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. This group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength, and it's the perfect space to explore new ideas and to share your journey. And you'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into the physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. So do not wait. Go now. Seriously, go. All right, much love to you. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on the next one.